0: Nats Chat is brought to you by Walters. Walters' 90-minute bottomless brunch can be added to the purchase of any entree for an additional $20. Bottomless options include mimosas, Bloody Marys, Trulies, and Bud Lights.
1: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Right fielder, number 22, Juan Soto.
2: It's a standing ovation for Juan Soto, who has taken off his helmet, pointed it to the first base side, the third base side, and now Soto ready to shuffle some dirt in the batter's box here at Nationals Park in his visiting uniform. Three balls, two strikes, runner goes, the pitch swung on, line to left, that's gonna be a base hit in front of Hernandez. Profar around second, slams the brakes on as Yachty fields it on one hop and will throw it in towards second base. So Soto two for four, is second hit of the game and second hit of the inning. Now Clifford ready, here's the pitch. Swing and a long drive to left, down the line toward the corner, Hernandez going back at the wall and it is gone, goodbye. Brandon Drury turns on it. It's a two-run homer. His 23rd of the year. Padres at two. It's now San Diego 10 and Washington 2.
0: And welcome to Nats Chat for Saturday, August 13, 2022, along with MassInsports.com, Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who is at Nationals Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, we on Friday night at Nationals Park had the return of someone who proudly wore the Nationals uniform for years, someone who can proudly say that he's one of the best hitters of his generation. Matt Williams was back at Nationals Park. He's the Padres third base coach. Did you know that? And oh yeah, Juan Soto and Josh Bell. They on Friday night were back at Nationals Park too. And they were on hand for a bludgeoning of the Nats, a 10-5 Nats loss to San Diego in game one of a three-game series, and a game that really wasn't as close as that score would indicate. And uh, that's fell to a major league worst 37 and 77 with a major league worst run differential of minus 205. There was a lot happening at Nationals Park on Friday night. We had the scoreboard not working for a good chunk of the game. We had the time of the game being four hours, three minutes. Friday also was Mark's birthday. Happy birthday, Mark. Did you get a birthday greeting from Matt Williams?
3: I did say hi to him. Yeah, I had a nice little chat with him. I don't think he realized it was my birthday. I'm sure at the end of the night, he was icing down his left arm from waving so many guys around. Third base, I also got to say hi to Craig Stammon, who's with the Padres. Uh, He's on the IL at the moment, but he's close to coming back. I spent more time in the Padres clubhouse than the Nationals clubhouse, as a matter of fact, just because the story was, of course, over there. And the craziest thing of all, of course, from our standpoint, Juan Soto and Josh Bell, their return to Nats Park was the story. For the San Diego writers, that was secondary because an even bigger story broke just before the game, Fernando Tatis Jr. suspended 80 games after testing positive for performance enhancing drugs. And so it made for a really weird dynamic post game where they wanted to talk about this game they just played and they scored 10 runs and all these good things and Soto getting the ovation and looming over it all is another one of their star players isn't even going to play for them before the season's over.
0: Yeah, that was nuts. I mean, literally, as the game is beginning, this huge news breaks, and the Padres general manager, A.J. Preller, spoke to Padres reporters during the game and kind of threw some shade on Tatis, basically saying, you know, maturity is an issue with this guy, and he's got to become more mature. Tatis put out a statement saying that he Accidentally treated ringworm with a medication that contained the PED for which he tested positive. Golly gee, I hate when that happens. You know, you have ringworm and you treat it with a medication and you end up testing positive for a PED.
3: Who knew that ringworm was such an issue for major league ballplayers? I've heard of a lot of ailments in my time covering sports, and there are some weird ones in there. This is the first reference ever that I've heard to ringworm being an issue.
0: Yeah, A.J. Preller didn't seem to believe that. If you look up what he tested positive for, Klostobol, uh, yeah, that's kind of hard to ingest that accidentally. But hey, that's a Padres problem. That is a San Diego issue. That's not a Nationals issue. The Nationals have enough issues of their own. So let's get into it. The returns of Juan Soto and Josh Bell. So, you know, obviously this is so odd, right? You make the trade on August 2nd, and here we are two weekends later, and Soto is back in a Padres uniform. Bell is back in a Padres uniform. I thought that the video message of Soto prior to the game, I thought that was really well done on Juan's part. Nationals fans, thank you. Thank you for everything. Thank you for being there for me, cheering for me, even if we weren't in the best moments of the team. You know, he always comes off so well. He came off very genuine. I thought that that was great. I saw the photo on social media of him talking to you guys prior to the game. It looked like there were a thousand reporters around him but how about him saying that he cried the whole morning on August 2nd? That was something.
3: It was all genuine. I mean, like you said, he's handled everything so well. Josh Bell, too, not want to shortchange him at all. But Juan Soto really has handled all of this so well. There have been opportunities where he could have said the wrong thing or said something insulting to anybody involved in this whole process, and he didn't. And it was genuine, all of it. He was devastated to be traded. Now As soon as he gets to San Diego and joins his new team, and they're in the thick of a pennant race, and the crowd reaction he got there, he's loving it, and he's very much into what they're doing right now. But you got to remember, this is the organization that signed him as a teenager in the Dominican Republic, developed him, brought him up to the big leagues at age 19. He wins a World Series at 20, is so close with so many of these people. He didn't want to be traded. You know, I think he's happy now to be with a team that is winning, as opposed to what he was facing here for the immediate future. But it was really emotional. But also, I thought everything that happened before and during the game on Friday, it felt appropriate, all of it. It was all genuine. There was legitimate standing ovations from the crowd, sustained ovations. Both Juan and Josh stepping out of the batter's box, taking their helmet off to acknowledge the crowd. Caber Ruiz, very subtly, but great job by a young catcher. And I was told he did this on his own. He wasn't told you should do this. Stepping out of the way to allow for that moment to play itself out, not trying to get down on a crouch and like start the at bat. He stepped away, let that all go on. I mean, you know, then hugging Soto around the plate. I mean, there was a lot of just genuine emotion out there. And I know it wasn't easy for the Nationals and their fans to see this happen only 10 days later, but it did bring some closure to what was obviously a very weird situation when the trade went down.
0: Yeah. Corey Abbott and K-Bert Ruiz did not try to quick pitch Soto when he got that ovation, which I thought was na- nice on their part. Yeah, so Soto on Friday night, starting right fielder, number two batter. He's been batting in the two spot for the Padres. Uh, that's kind of funny that uh, that's where they're putting him. Went two for six with a double and an RBI single. Uh, Josh Bell on Friday night. He was your Padres starting first baseman and cleanup batter. 0 for 5 with a walk-in to a strikeout, Left three men on base. Soto also signed autographs for a while prior to the game, right? That was pretty cool for him to do something like that. We also had this on Friday regarding the Nats Soto saga. And, you know, there is a part of me that's kind of like what's done is done. We should move on. But at the same time, I think the truth matters about why what happened happened. And I still think there are a lot of questions about why the Nats traded Soto. And, you know, a theory that's been out there is that the prospective buyers of the Nats greenlit the Nats trading Soto or even wanted Soto to be traded and that that's why the learners and Mike Rizzo were kind of antsy to do this when, again, it kind of felt like, you know, they didn't have to do this. Well, uh, the Washington Post on Friday morning came out with a piece about the sale of the Nats and where we stand right now. Within the article was the following on the input of prospective Nats owners on the team trading Juan Soto. Quote, three people with direct knowledge of the Soto deliberation said the learners did not seek input about Soto from any of the potential bidders, end quote. I think that that adds even more mystery to all of this, because at least prior to that, you could say, well, maybe the prospective buyers wanted him gone for whatever reason. If the prospective buyers weren't even consulted that really to me makes this more curious. Why were the Nats in such a hurry to trade this guy this year? Like, I still come back to this, man. This didn't have to happen. He didn't have to be traded as he was a few weeks ago.
3: So, the sense that I got at the time and I still get today from people within the organization was this they made what they felt like was the best offer they were going to make him at this point. He turned it down. They had reason to believe that he was never going to agree to a deal before reaching free agency. And that didn't really necessarily have to do with who the owners were or not. And so Mark Lerner says to Mike Rizzo, hey, listen, if you want to explore trade possibilities, go ahead and see what's out there. And if you think there is a trade that makes sense, then go ahead and do it. And Rizzo started that process, didn't necessarily say, okay, I'm definitely going to trade him, but here's what I'm going to ask for him. And if I get that, I'm going to go ahead and pull the trigger and make that move. And in the end, AJ Preller gave him the package that he felt like he couldn't say no to. And so as hard as this is to believe, I think they felt like internally this was a baseball decision and that it was a an offer they could not pass up at this time, that they would never get another offer like that. Now, we've discussed how whether that would be true or not, and maybe six months from now or a year from now, they could still have gotten something comparable to that or Why not wait it out just in case the team gets better and a new owner does come in with a blank checkbook? But by all counts, they made these decisions without any of that in their minds and did it based on what they thought was the best baseball decision and the best move to give them a chance to win sooner than they would have if they had kept them. You can agree or disagree with it, but I think it is genuine that that's what their approach was here.
0: I mean, more and more, that appears to be what they thought because it doesn't seem like the future owner of the Nats, whoever that is, played a role in this. It, feel, it feels like this was a current Nationals regime decision. And, you know, I wonder, maybe this was more a Mike Rizzo decision than it was a learner's decision. Although, you know, when they talk about they made the best offer they were going to make, I think that can be debated. I don't know if you read the Jeff Passan piece on the Soto trade from a few days ago, But he actually listed in chronological order the offers the Nats made to Soto. And to me, every offer was one of these offers that you're like day late, dollar short. Like it was never super aggressive. It was never the like whammo offer that you felt like you had to make to sign them. And it just to me, it's subcommunicated you really weren't trying to sign him. You know, I know there's this thing of Boris and Soto and Soto has no interest in signing an extension and maybe that's true, but you know what's also true? He's 23 years old. And you know what people in their early 20s tend to do? They change their minds about things because they're still growing and evolving and you don't always know every little thing that you want in your life when you're 23. And so The idea that maybe his mind could have been changed as time went on—I don't think that that's that far-fetched, especially with new owners coming in. So it just—it feels like they wanted to trade him. Maybe they wanted to trade him simply because, like you said, they felt it was the right baseball move. You know, I think that brings back the conversation of well, if you were in better shape from a farm system standpoint, would you have felt that that was the right baseball move? So, you know, again, what's done is done. We get that. But I think understanding and having true clarity on what led to this, I mean, one of the biggest trades in baseball history, I think this matters. I think it's a big deal why this happened and what truly was the thought process behind it.
3: So I do think it was, even though he hasn't like explicitly said this publicly, but I think it was an admission on Mike Rizzo's part that they were not in a position in his mind to build a contending team again with Juan Soto before he would become a free agent. And that's kind of counter to what he said a year ago, when they made the Scherzer and Turner and all the other trades. The idea was, I think he even said, like our number one priority now is to re-sign Juan Soto and build a team around him, and we think we can do this within a couple of years. And I don't know if that's because of the Strasburg injury, Corbin struggles, other guys not really developing the way they thought they would quickly enough, or did he deep down know all along that his organization was not really built. To win anytime soon. And I think it was an admission on his part. I think Mike Rizzo genuinely believes that they have a better chance of winning sooner now than they did with Soto on the team. And I think there's also that question of was there a number that they could have gone to to try to keep him, but would that have prohibited them from doing whatever else he thought was necessary? You know, I think there is an argument for what they ended up doing, but I think, like we've said all along, it feels like they could have waited it feels like you at least see what happens with new ownership. It feels like make the guy one more offer that comes across as, okay, this is really a hard one for him to turn down. In the end, they didn't do it and this is where we are now.
0: The extension offers real quick from Jeff Passon of ESPN that the Nats put forth to Soto over these last few years, $110 million, $180 million, $350 million, $415 million, and then the one everyone knows by now, 15 years, $440 million. He doesn't have the years with all of these deals. And that obviously does matter. But not a single one was one where you were just like, wow, that was they really tried. And Soto just said, no, it was more like they tried, but you knew they could do better and they didn't do better. And so you have to ask, well, why didn't they do better? So that is where we are. Juan Soto is with the Padres. And I tell you what, If he ends up signing an extension with the Padres, there will be riots in the streets of DC. And I think that's going to be fascinating to see. Does he sign an extension with the Padres, or is it true that this guy is just dead set on going to free agency? I think that's going to be fascinating.
3: Yeah, I agree. And I think uh, the other day it came up before he ever got to DC, and he said something to the effect of, I'm going to be here for the next two and a half years, and then we'll see what happens after that. So. Kind of the same thing he said all along here that he has intended all along to go to free agency. But yeah, you're right. If Let's say the Padres go on a deep October run, whether it's this year, next year, he becomes a hero there and their ownership group goes to him and says, hey, don't you want to stay here forever? Don't you love the beach and the surfing and the nice weather and the palm trees and all that? And he says, yeah, you know what? Maybe I do want to stay here. All right, Scott, sign the deal. That would be an especially bitter pill for the Nationals to swallow.
0: Again, he's 23. People in their early 20s tend to change their minds on things. Just keep that in mind.
1: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data
2: it's a ground ball to short Garcia has it he runs to the bag and throws to first and not in time he didn't get it out at second
0: either wow he threw the ball before he touched second base well we had the game on Friday night it was a 10-5 Nats loss and we had a seven run Padres fifth inning that felt like it was never ever ever going to end and so many things went wrong in this inning from a Nationals perspective Victor Urano was a mess in this inning. This was tough to watch. He just could not get guys out. He, in the inning, allowed five runs, recorded just two outs, but only one of the runs was earned. And that's because we had the latest installment of As the Luis Garcia Turns at Shortstop. And you know at this point, Luis Garcia is kind of like your lame duck every game national shortstop. This is kind of a weird predicament he's in because the plug is basically being pulled. And we're just kind of counting down the days until C.J. Abrams is called up. And so you wonder how invested he is right now in becoming better defensively at shortstop. I'm not saying that he's not trying, but That's got to mess with your motivation at least a little bit, knowing that someone else is about to take that spot and you're moving back to second base. Well, in the seven-run fifth, Luis Garcia committed a one-out fielding error. He, with runners at the corners on a grounder off the bat of Jake Cronenworth, in an attempt at turning a 6-3 double play, missed stepping on second base and then saw his throw to first base be too late. This was something new and something different from Luis. Now, I don't know if he decided, okay, I got to rush to first, and so I'm not going to try to get the out at second. But the way it ended up looking was that he tried to step on second. He threw the ball before stepping on second. He still ended up stepping on second, by the way. And then the throw to first was not in time. He got charged with the error. Arano was terrible in this inning, okay, that he only got charged with one and run is laughable. But this defensive miscue was something else and obviously was costly
3: disaster from the get-go. He fields the ball and it looks like he wants to toss it to Cesar Hernandez, who's not going to be there in time. So now he's got to run to the base himself. And in his mind, he's thinking, I got to be quick. I got to get the ball to first. And he starts to make the throw and the ball comes out of his hand before he steps on second. I could see it playing his day from the press box 500 feet away. And the umpire, to his credit, was on top of it. Sometimes you might just think, oh, well, of course he did it in time. Well, no, he actually didn't. And it's careless, of course, and that's not the first time we've seen that happen, but as Davy Martinez pointed out afterwards, you have to just get an out. You got to make sure you get an, whatever it is, get an out, then worry about the double play. And he did it the opposite way, and he panicked, realizing that it was going to be a close play at first and got rid of the ball too soon. Now, this all happens two innings before he ends up leaving the game after hurting his groin running down the first baseline. He had already missed the game on Wednesday with a sore right knee. This is the same side of his leg you do wonder what that means for him, you know, at least in the days to come, it's going to get an MRI and it wouldn't be surprising if he misses at least a few games, if not more than that. And so maybe we actually have seen the last of him at shortstop because by the time he returns, it's possible CJ Abrams is already here.
0: Yeah. At this point, defensively, it just has not worked out. I mean, I'm all for giving him a shot. The numbers are just atrocious. He really just has not been a good defensive shortstop and doesn't seem to be getting better. I mean, it seems to be getting almost worse here as time goes on. Now, with Arano in that inning, I mean, we've seen some bad innings from Nats relievers this season. This was especially bad, and it was bad literally from the get-go. On the very first pitch he threw, he gave up a two-run double to Manny Machado off the center field wall for a 3 nothing Padres lead. On that hit, you kind of had some bad Nats defense too. Now, not an easy play by any stretch, but you know I thought of you when the play happened because we've talked about Lane Thomas, how he struggles going to the outfield wall. And poor, poor Lane. I mean, he did not look comfortable on this play. Again, not an easy play. And I'm not saying he should have made the catch, but it would be interesting to see like Victor Robles on that play if he could have made that catch. Goes leaping into the wall, doesn't come close to making the catch. Machado winds up with a two-run double. And then it's on. Arano issues a one-out, eight-pitch walk of Brandon Drury. Arano gives up a two-out, three-run homer to Trent Grisham on a bomb to right field, 442 feet per stat cast. And then Arano gives up three consecutive two-out singles, including a two-out full-count opposite-field RBI single by, yes, Juan Soto to put the Padres up 8 nothing. That was some inning, that seven-run Padres fifth
3: torture torture he just could not get the last out and yes the inning could have been over if Garcia makes the play properly but as we've talked about so many times happened to Patrick Corbin too you got to get the outs yourself you can't just rely on your defense to do everything if somebody makes a mistake behind you it's your job to minimize the damage and get out of it and Arano could not do it and then the most frustrating part of all he finally gets pulled because Davey just can't take it anymore brings in a Rosmo Ramirez and he gets out of the inning on one pitch Like, where was that all along? One more pitch they could have gotten out of it. But I will say this, and this is without Tatis in their lineup. Let's consider the fact that the Padres scored 10 runs in this game, and only one of them was driven in by Juan Soto or Josh Bell. This is a really good lineup with depth. The fact that, you know, Machado is such a big part of it, but also Brandon Drury, Jake Cronenworth, Trent Grisham, the guy who helped turn Juan Soto into a star when he was the right fielder. Milwaukee Brewers is actually a pretty good player himself. They've got a lot in that lineup, and they were supposed to have even more with Tatis. Even without him, this is a very tough lineup that works at bats well and can score a lot of runs from a lot of different people. I thought in the bigger picture, the Nats did a good job containing Soto and Bell in this game, and they still gave up 10 runs.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, the Padres are really good. It gets overshadowed a little bit because the Dodgers are in like another universe. But the Padres at their best, and they haven't been at their best lately, and especially now with this Tatis thing. going to be interesting to see how they do down the stretch. But the Padres, when they're on, can be as good and as exciting as any team in baseball. That whole Slam Diego thing they had going on a few years ago with all the grand slams, I mean, that was a pretty cool thing. And one of the interesting things about that, I remember walking around Arlington and and seeing people wearing Padres shirts. Like the Padres almost became like a a national brand because of that. You know, they've got the good-looking uniforms and the young, exciting stars. So it's an organization with a lot going for it, no doubt. But we'll see what happens here now with Tatis out uh, for the rest of this season. So yeah, so Arano struggled in that seven-run fifth inning. The other Nats reliever who really struggled in this game was the returning Tyler Clippard. Uh, The Nats on Friday afternoon announced several roster moves, including reinstating Tyler Clippard from the 15-day injured list. He'd been on that since July 22nd, retroactive to July 19th with a groin strain. And it just was not good for Clippert on Friday night. Top of the eighth, he allowed two runs, but he in the inning gave up a homer, two doubles, a walk, and a hit by pitch. We did see the Nats debut of Jake McGee. He looked good. He got activated on Friday, perfect top of the seventh for him. Mark mentioned Erasmo Ramirez, one and a third scoreless innings, and then Hunter Harvey tossed a scoreless top of the ninth inning. But a lot of bullpen work here. Five Nats relievers were used on Friday night. The Nats starting pitcher, Corey Abbott, uh, only ended up lasting for four innings. Uh, gave up three runs in the four innings. Had five strikeouts, but uh, gave up three doubles, a single, uh, he issued three walks as well.
3: With Clippard, he got Soto out. He starts him out. It was a great at-bat, eight pitches. I was kind of waiting for that one all, all night long to see what would happen. A lot of change-ups and sinkers and pitches that move. And he got him, he hit he it to the warning track, but he got him... Out And then he couldn't get anybody else, which was quite frustrating. But then also the bizarre part of this was one inning before they bring in, they finally have a lefty in their bullpen, Jake McGee. He comes in and he doesn't face Soto because he came out of the game after the one inning. Now, McGee, one, two, three inning, two fly balls to the warning track that they just missed connecting on those. So good results. Still need to see a little more from McGee to know that he's going to be fixed from where he was earlier in the year. But this was a rough night for the pitching staff all around. A ton of pitches. Corey Abbott throws 90 pitches in four-plus innings. He held him scoreless through the first three, but his pitch count's getting up there. We're just having all kinds of trouble putting hitters away. And you felt like it was inevitable at some point the Padres lineup was going to break through, and they certainly did in the
0: fifth. Yeah, they did, no doubt. Offensively for the Nats on Friday night, five runs, 10 hits, six walks. Uh, The Nats went two for 17 with runners in scoring position. You can't say that the Nats didn't have their opportunities on Friday night. Oh, the Nats did have their opportunities on Friday night, two for seventeen. with runners in scoring position, a few things that stood out. So Joey Manessis did not homer on Friday night, but he did make a pretty nice defensive play on Friday night. So Manessis was an at-starting right fielder and number 5 batter. He went 2-for-4 with two singles and a walk. He did leave five men on base, so he was a part of the 2-for-17 with runners in scoring position. But Manessis, in the top of the sixth, a nice backhanded and sliding forward catch Of a Jake Cronenworth liner for the second out. And then he ends up leading off what ends up being a one run, nat sixth, with an opposite field single to right center field, despite having been down to the count of 1.02. So, no, he didn't, Homer, but some more good stuff from Joey Manessis in this game.
3: Yeah, but I'm looking at his first two at bats when he had a chance to really do something. Bases load in the first inning, double play ends the inning. Two on, two out in the third, and he strikes out on three pitches. Those were. Some opportunities in what was still a scoreless game and a chance to give his team a lead it didn't come through. Yes, he came through like a lot of his team. They finally started clicking at the end, which I think made it a little misleading, the final numbers. Until the ninth inning, they had six hits, all of them singles, and five walks, and that's it. No power like you said, not delivering with runners in scoring position. And then they finally got something going in the ninth as the boys tried to battle. They didn't quite get to the point where they were battling. They're still down five runs, but they tried to battle in the ninth. But they can't keep putting themselves in this position. You got to start converting earlier in games. Take a lead. Give your team a chance instead of, you know, these hopeless late last gasp rallies that usually come up short.
0: They've done this a few times and it just feels pointless because they're down by so many runs and you're saying... Unless you're about to mount one of the great comeback wins in recent MLB history, like <laughs> stop wasting all of our time because all you end up doing is adding like 25 minutes to the game time. That's why the game was four hours, three minutes on Friday night. But like in that ninth inning, it was the three run night. You get a leadoff homer by Michael Franco. OK, great. You get a pinch double by Josh Palacios. OK, great. You get an RBI single by K. Ruiz. OK, great. But it all feels for naught. You're like, what, what are we doing here? You were down 10 2, now you're down 10 5. Okay, fine. Like, it means nothing. It's like, it's the epitome of garbage. You only know, have a garbage time in an NFL blowout or an NBA blowout. Like, that's what it feels like in that bottom of the night. Now, we've said this, and I do mean this. I mean, I credit the Nats. They don't tap out, they do continue to put forth professional at bats. There's something to be said for that but it just doesn't really mean anything when you're down by so many runs going into a ninth inning like that.
3: It's like the quarterback whose final numbers are, you know, 37 of 52 for 420 yards and they all came in the second half while they're playing from 20 points down, just trying to catch up. Yeah, that's what it is. It's padding the stats in the end. And, And yes, to their credit, they don't give up. They could have just rolled over and let the game be over and they didn't. But when you have opportunities earlier in the game, like they did in this case, you got to come through. Now, you're asking guys who should not be in the positions that they're in to deliver. Joey Menezes, we love him for what he's done so far. He probably is should not be batting fifth in a big league lineup and coming up with the bases load in the first inning against Mike Clevenger. They should probably have someone like, oh, I don't know, Juan Soto or Josh Bell hitting in that spot, and they don't anymore. And so you have a lineup that has Nelson Cruz batting third, Yadiel Hernandez batting fourth, and Joey Manessa batting fifth. What can we really expect from them uh, given that lineup? So you know, understand what they're working with here, but they're in the big leagues. You have an opportunity to do something. It'd be nice to come through at least a few times and actually make it a competitive game early on.
0: Well, Yadiel did draw three walks on Friday night, so he was Soto-esque drawing three walks. I got to say this. I mean, I know everyone loves him, what is this loyalty to Nelson Cruz batting in the three or four spots? I mean, I don't understand this. We saw him demoted to the sixth spot prior to the trade deadline. We thought, okay, like maybe finally there's a little bit of a deviation here from having to bat him third or fourth. I know you don't have many other good options, but I don't think people understand how bad of a season Nelson Cruz is having and he's taking you nowhere. At least put someone else in that spot. I mean, it's painful. All he does is the occasional single. Otherwise, it's like an RBI groundout. That's it. Like Those are the only productive plate appearances he he has. He had an RBI groundout on Friday night. Like That's the extent of his production right now. It's tough to watch. Everyone likes him, but why is he still batting so high up in the lineup?
3: He hasn't homered since June 25th in Texas. I mean, come on. (laughs) What are we doing? You're not wrong. And I think this is Davey saying, well, this is what I have to work with now. So I'm going to respect the one veteran I still have and put him out there to do that. Um, But like we said, you know, a few days ago, you have some young and hungry guys who are trying to make their mark. Is it the worst thing in the world just to put them out there and see what they could do? Manessa's been playing a lot. You know, who hasn't been playing is Josh Palacios. And I have no idea what he might be or if he's capable of doing anything for you, but you went ahead and called him up. Why not let him play? The other part, when you have Nelson in there, he can only DH and so he's clogging up that spot and they've got like three different guys who could or should be DHs and so you end up with an outfield of Yadiel Hernandez in left field, Joey Manessis in right field, <laughs> probably not where either of them should be. Luke Voigt at first base, there's just no options for you to do anything else, try anything different, mix and match a little bit because you're clogging up the DH spot with your 42 year old who isn't producing.
0: Yeah, and let me say this, Luke Voigt can hit, although he's cooled off lately, He makes Josh Bell look like Keith Hernandez at first base, okay? Luke Voigt has had some bad defensive moments so far. He had another one on Friday night, top of the second, a two out fielding error with uh, Trent Grisham batting. Voigt allowed a grounder to go right through his legs, I mean, right through the five hole. I mean, that's something you see in Little League. I mean, that really should not happen at this level. And. He's just not very good defensively. Like, he should be DHing maybe, but he's not a very good first baseman. I think we can already say that pretty safely given what we've uh, observed with him. Yeah. Who does that guy
3: think he is? Not Keith Hernandez.
0: No, <laughs> no, no, not at all. Rough night for Lane Thomas, too. 0 for 5 with a strikeout, left five men on base. So, look, this is the state of the Nats. We understand that it's going to be like this. We knew when they traded Soto and Bell, the lineup was not going to be formidable. And uh, the hope right now is that you get these prospects up as quickly as you can, you know, within reason here, especially like a C.J. Abrams, and you see what you got. I know Mackenzie Gore was playing catch prior to the game on Friday. Have you heard any kind of a timeline for when he might pitch for the Nats?
3: So they've really been careful not to say anything like that, but this is a good step. But let's acknowledge it's the first step. He had been shut down with elbow inflammation. He's just playing catch. You got to do that a few times then you stretch out to long tossing, then you finally get on a mound, then you finally start facing hitters. And because he's a starting pitcher, you probably have to send him out on some kind of rehab assignment as well. So, you know, do the math. It's going to be weeks, I would imagine. And even in a best case scenario, we're probably talking about him making a handful of starts in September for them down the stretch. I think there's value in that, assuming he's healthy. There's nothing to be concerned about there. It's funny, Craig Stammen, talking to him, he was really hyping up all these guys that the Nats got in the trade. And he said that Mackenzie Gore has the potential, potential keyword here, to be another Clayton Kershaw. So he likes him that much. Okay. Likes him a lot. Really likes Abrams. So, you know, we'll see. If, of course, an ex-teammate is going to have nothing but good things to say, but he volunteered that. And I thought, okay, that that's pretty high praise. And That's also why the Nationals have to be careful here. They're not just going to rush him to get him out there for the sake of it. Hopefully, we do see him here at some point. Eric Fetty also threw a simulated game before Friday, three innings, I believe it was. Looks like he'll go out and at least make one rehab start before he comes back. A little bit of help maybe for the rotation. Not the best help you could ask for, but something at least.
0: Craig Stammen is in his age 38 season and still pitching in the majors. Good for him. The Nats, by the way, got Craig Stammon in the 12th round of the 2005 MLB draft. Believe it or not, you can find diamonds in the rough late in MLB drafts.
3: That is one of the all-time underrated draft classes, 2005. We all know who their first round pick was, Ryan Zerman. In that class, they also got Justin Maxwell, John Lannan, Craig Lannan, And a guy named Marco Estrada, who had a decent career, wasn't with the Nationals mostly, but that was five legitimate big leaguers for a while, including the superstar and a guy who's still pitching at age 38. Yes, it was possible to do that in one draft. Back then, their scouting director was a guy named Dana Brown. You know where he is right now? He's a scouting director of the Atlanta Braves. Pretty good eye for talent.
0: Yeah. And uh, that says a lot about a lot, doesn't it? 2005, 17 years ago. Would nice to have a draft like that here this year. We'll see what ends up becoming of the Nats 2022 draft class. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the podcast, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com. We want to hear from those of you who are attending this series against the Padres at Nationals Park this weekend. What was your experience like What are your thoughts on and emotions toward the returns of Juan Soto and Josh Bell? Your thoughts on the trade as we're now a week and a half removed from that? Uh, Send us a voice memo. Let us know what you're thinking, how you're feeling. Uh, You can just record yourself talking into your smartphone and then email the file to us. Uh, The email address again, natschatpodcast at gmail.com. You can get yourself or someone who you know a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt by going to natschatpodcast.com dot square dot site. That's Chat Podcast dot, square dot site All Nationals radio highlights on Natch Chat are courtesy of 1067 The Fan. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi, and we'll talk to you next time on the Natch Chat Podcast.
4: Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in.